remember this story. It didn't uh, come out all that long ago, a week or so. A man in Florida, his name Robert Du Bois, who had been convicted of murder in 1983 and had spent 37 years in prison based on the testimony of, as the article that I read described it, a jailhouse informant. He was released on the 27th of August, just a week or so ago, because newly discovered DNA evidence proved he was innocent. 37 years of his life because someone lied. Hard to imagine having to endure that. But our justice system is not perfect. It's good, but it's not perfect. Things can go wrong. Mistakes can be made. Life in general is unjust, one way or another, to each and every one of us, somehow or another. Outright lies, well, they can wreck somebody's life. Many are the individuals who have lost a portion of their lives to false accusations within the justice system. But many, many others have lost jobs because of some falsehood. Lost jobs, lost reputations, lost opportunities because of lies told about them. You know, it's a difficult thing to defend yourself against an untruth. Think about it. If it's untrue, how are you going to find a witness to clear your name? There's not going to be any. What should we do about injustices that we suffer? What do we do about lies that are told against us? And and just get in any conflict on the job, in any group of people, and there will be lies told about you. Whether people understand it to be lies, or it's just exaggerations, or they repeat things they shouldn't, it'll happen. What do we do when we encounter evil? Well, Psalm 58 provides us the answer. David wrote Psalm 58. We know this from the description given there prior to verse 1 in the English Bible, but actually part of the text in Hebrew. And David suffered much at the hands of evil men over his lifetime. Therefore, David's word, it is inspired, it's the word of God too, 
But David's inspired words on the matter are highly instructive for us. Now, this is what we have to understand. They are honest expressions of what David felt and how he reacted to injustice. They are honest expressions of his anger, but also of his faith. Unfortunately, we in this day and age do not understand that those two things can indeed exist together in the righteous form. We can honestly express righteous anger, righteous indignation. And at the same time, our faith. Well, Psalm 58 shows us this and will help us understand how we can deal with this problem. Now, you'll note on screen there that we are in our list of the different categories of Psalms and we're taking one from each category we are down to what's called the imprecatory psalms. That might be a word that uh, you don't use every day. I think that's probably the case with all of us. So I'm going to give you a quick definition. You might want to jot this down. Uh, when we say imprecatory or when we define the word imprecation, what we're talking about is a cry to God for justice. A cry to God for justice that involves his retribution or punishment of evil. David recorded several psalms of this type. But the question we have to ask ourselves is should we pray as David prayed in this regard? Should we pray imprecatory prayers, prayers that cry out for God's justice against those who are doing evil? The answer, the short answer, is simply yes. However, there is a very strict and specific restriction that the Scripture as a whole puts upon us that comes to play into this whole question. So, should we pray against evil? Yes. Pray against evil, but don't seek personal vengeance. That's the restriction that comes into play. And before we move on with Psalm 58, we just need to notice that. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's Romans 12, verse 19. Now, that's very instructive. Don't avenge yourselves. Don't get even. Don't get back at people that hurt you in any fashion, unless you're having to defend your life, of course. But words in particular should not bring about a response on our behalf to get even. Give them the same that we have received. But rather, he says, give place to wrath. Give the proper place to your wrath. Well, what is that? 
Well, leave vengeance to God and we'll, we'll go on from there and we'll come back to this. But again, pray against evil, but don't seek personal vengeance. Now, as we address this in Psalm 58, the first thing we're going to do is group the first five verses under this question here, the heading of why. But why should we pray against evil? Well, what is the, what is the justification for the kind of prayers that David prays here in this psalm? So let's look at the justification. Number one, perverted justice is justification. Verse one, David says, do you indeed speak righteousness? That's a question. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? So David is speaking to those in positions of authority, those who render judgment, who are not rendering any. They're just keeping quiet and letting evil run rampant. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Now the answer to those two questions that David just posed are no. Uh, or the negative. Do, do you speak righteousness? No. Do you judge uprightly? No. Now that's, that's the verdict that must be rendered upon this world and upon the matter of justice in this world. Are there cases? Are there many cases? Hopefully the majority of the time, hopefully 90% of the time, there is real justice that uh, is the result of our legal system. But there is never, ever complete and utter justice in this world in every case. Or to the extent that it should be in many cases, no doubt. Now, that will change... When Jesus comes back to the period, enemies at the battle get and institutes the millennial kingdom where he will rule this world with a rod of iron. There will be absolute justice. But mankind at best can only try to replicate real justice. And David is facing injustice as he writes Psalm 58. Almost all the commentators agree that Psalm 58 was penned by David during the years that he fled for his life, being hounded by Saul and the armies of Israel as he went with his group of men and hid in the wilderness and in the caves. Did David deserve that? Absolutely not. David was a great and mighty and very successful warrior, for Saul, and very loyal. But Saul became jealous of him because David was more popular than he was. And he could have remedied, remedied that in the beginning if he would have went out and faced Goliath, but he didn't. David did that. And so Saul attempted to kill David with his own hand, with a spear on more than one occasion, and David finally had to flee and, and run and hide. So Saul, being the king of Israel, was the instrument, supposedly the instrument of God's righteousness. 
Not only the king of Israel, but the judge. He mean the, the judicial authority, the political authority, all that resided in the king. And Saul's judgment in regarding to David, he deserved to die, but for no reason. There's no justice in that. We continue on. And notice in verse 2, it's bad enough this happens, but it thrives. No, he says. Here's, there's the answer. The answer to those first two questions, no. Verse 2. And then he says this, In heart you work righteousness. Excuse me. Boy, did I say that wrong. In your heart you work wickedness. Now the, the Hebrew verb here indicates it's an ongoing working. In your heart you are working. You are always working. You are always devising wickedness. And the rest of the verse, you weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. So, it's one thing to remain silent and not render righteous judgment, but Saul and those with him were actually literally pursuing wickedness. Constantly, constantly devising, contemplating, planning wicked actions. Kind of reminds me of Ken... Jung Un in North Carolina or North Carolina. Can we bleep this? <laughs> uh, probably not. In North Korea. Kim Jong Un. You probably saw this. This has been much more effective. I hadn't made that <laughs> mistake. Kim Jong Un has decided that pets, dogs, household pets, are a capitalist decadence that needs to be eliminated in North Korea. Thank God, North Carolina. <laughs> and the people of North Korea, the primarily the people that are the well-off people in that nation, which probably aren't that well-off compared to a lot of other nations, but those who were able to have pets in the home had to turn their pets in to be euthanized. So they could be served in restaurants. Dog is evidently a delicacy there. And I'm thinking, well, that really helped the poor people. The, the people that have pets and can afford them, they give up their pets to turn around and be served in restaurants. I'm sure the, the people who are starving in North Korea really benefit from that. This is the kind of thing David is describing here. Somebody who just, somebody who does nothing more than sit around and plan and contemplate and think about and institute evil. Now, perverted judgment is the result of flawed character. So as we get down to verse three, he continues to describe the evil that he's up against. He says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They, they, they go astray from all that is human from the very beginning of life. They go astray, he says, as soon as they are born. 
speaking lies. Yes, it is true. Every one of us were born sinners. We're born liars, one way or another. And if it's not for the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of the new birth, we would never be any more than that. So those that reject God and those that reject the grace of God, to one degree or another, fit this description. But David is speaking about people who are completely and utterly depraved and given to their wickedness, which comes, which comes from within and from their birth. Verse 4, their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear. I don't know where a cobra's ear is. <laughs> I'm not sure how snakes hear, but this is a, this is a, a metaphor, if you will. He is is painting for us in picturesque language the character of the unjust. So the cobra stops his ear and will not heed the voice of charmers. Now, this goes back to the Middle Eastern and uh, Eastern practice. You know, you see these guys with a little turban on their head and they're sitting in front of a basket playing a little flute. And, and, you know, the cobra comes out. I don't know... uh, if that's done much anymore, but we've all seen that on TV or somewhere. Well, those who charm snakes in that fashion control them by the music or whatever they do. But he says, evil people of which I'm describing here, they are like a cobra that cannot be charmed, cannot be controlled, who is very deadly. And so here we have the flawed character that is described for us. This inability to listen or to heed advice or to take as normal what we would consider would be just common Decent practice. No, it's all rejected. They're not only dangerous, not only poisonous, but they're obstinate in their evil. Saul had fallen into this category. And David, no doubt, is addressing Saul when he writes this. But it probably goes beyond Saul. It probably includes Abner, Saul's military leader, and I'll, I'll show you why I think that may be true in a moment or two, and others. So was Saul guilty? Is this a description of Saul? Yes. Is, was Abner and others guilty? Is this a description of others around Saul that, that, that gave him advice? Probably. So this is the why. This is why it's so important for us as believers to be able to carry our problems, our challenges that comes from evil in this world to the feet of God in prayer. 
we're always going to face it one way or another, to one degree or another, for the rest of the time we're in this world. That's the why. We're up against a very, very perverted, wicked, depraved, and obstinately evil world. So, that answers the question of why. Why do we need to pray against evil? But there's a second question I want to address with you that covers the rest of the psalm. And that is the question of how. How do we pray against evil? What should be the content of our prayers? Now here is a question that I think is largely misunderstood. Let's go back to Romans 12, 19 again. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Okay, We've got to take what we see here in Psalm 58 and other Psalms like it. We've got to, we've got to fit it into the overall umbrella, the total scope of God's inspired word. And we have to balance it out more than any other way with what we find in the New Testament, which is God's word for us in this dispensation. <coughs> and God's word clearly says that it's not permissible to seek personal vengeance. We all understand that. We understand what personal vengeance is, or we should. That's, uh, you know, well, uh, you did this to me, so I'll do this to you. Pay somebody what they deserve. You know, the old cowboy movies, John Wayne movies, and so on, you know. Finally, somebody in a, a <coughs> face-off, I don't know, that's Right, the uh, right word, but I can't remember the right word. You know, when two guys standing there and, and they're going to draw, and, and the, the the bad guy gets shot, and he's laying there in the street, and they all gather around, and they look down at him, and he said, "Well, he had it coming to him." <laughs> that's that's the wrong way to look at things. That doesn't it doesn't excuse us for being vengeful. So, we have to balance out being real in our prayers with God and, and putting our faith into active, into an active prayer life where we uh, seek to <clears throat> deal with our problems, our injustices, by turning them over to God for Him to act versus taking matters into our own hands. Again, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, is another New Testament verse from the lips of Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But that pretty well covers the gamut of it, doesn't it? But... Just as we cannot take passages like Psalm 58 and apply them without 
bringing in such verses as Matthew 5.44, neither can we take Matthew 5.44 and ignore what we see in Psalm 58, for example. What I'm saying to you is that both can be perfectly compatible with the other. If I, and you can go go back to that verse again. If I have been wronged by someone, if I have an enemy that has offended me, afflicted me, who hates me, who persecutes me, whatever it is, my obligation is not to seek personal vengeance, not to get even with my own hand, but leave it to God to handle. And when we understand here, when we read, first of all, in this whole list, that we should love our enemies, we have to understand that submitting somebody to the justice of God is a way of loving our enemies. Overlooking and excusing evil is not loving an enemy. That's only allowing them more freedom to be evil and to hurt more people. So, now let's look at Psalm 58. What is the content? How do we answer the question, how? Okay, well here's what it means. Verse 6, number 1. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. This is David's words. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Now this is this is synonymous parallelism in the Hebrew poetic style. It's also a metaphor. The first part of the metaphor, probably referring back to the fangs of the cobra just mentioned. The second part of the parallelism, bringing in a lion. As another example, like the cobra, who is very a very dangerous animal. But a cobra without fangs or a lion without teeth is to be pretty much uh, rendered harmless. Of course, the lion has claws and all that, but this is just simply making a point here. That to remove from the, the, the cobra, to remove from the lion, the means of doing evil should be the focus, one focus, the beginning focus of our prayers. Pray that those doing evil might be rendered unable to do evil. It's like, you go back to something like World War II. I mean, I'm sure there were prayers all over this nation in those days that our armies would be victorious over the armies of Hitler. Now, that's not a personal vengeance, but that is praying in, in, the, in the sense of asking to remove from the evil man Hitler the means to do damage by the defeat of his army. Another way that we pray for evildoers to be countered in their evil is we might pray for an evildoer's salvation. 
that they might come to know the Lord and change their behavior. Or their repentance. Sometimes even God's people do evil and need to repent. I had this example given to me, and I'll throw it out to you. The example was given to me uh, by someone who said, you know, when I know that a professing Christian is doing wrong, I sometimes pray that God will disturb their sleep at night until they repent. Well, that's a fair prayer. We want their conscience to be operative where it's not. We want God to get through to them. And, and, and there's many other ways God has to do that. It involves the discipline of the Heavenly Father. It's not wrong to pray for that. Then there are situations like, say, the whole uh, pro-life movement. Now, we that believe that preborn children are human beings and that uh, abortion is a taking a life of a human being, it is perfectly legitimate for us to work politically to try to change the laws in our country, to pray specifically that those laws would be changed, or maybe even protest or do whatever that we can to stop it without breaking the law or doing harm or hurting people in the process. So let's move on to verse 7. He says, let them flow away as waters which run continually. <laughs> uh, if you turn on your faucet and let it run, and you never shut it off, you'll eventually run out of water. Either you or your neighborhood, or your well will go dry, or the city water, I don't know. It'll take a long time, but I suppose that's possible too. He says, I pray, and this is his wish, this is his prayer, let them flow away as waters which run continually. Let, let them be taken away, removed from the scene. And then he follows that up with the parallel statement, when he bends his bow, let his arrows be as cut in pieces. Let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Now what he's saying there is, an evil man goes to draw his bow, and he fires it, but there's no point. The tip is broke off. I pray that the tips will be broke off of his arrows, broken pieces. So they will not penetrate, or they won't do damage. So we pray that evil men and the means of their doing evil uh, to be removed. Like Haman was removed from the scene in the book of Esther. Or like Herod was removed from the scene in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. I think we have that verse. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, yeah. Because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Well, that was an act of God. So evil men need to be removed from the scene. Even take Genesis 9, 6. Here's one a lot of people don't like to think about in this day and age. Whosoever sheds Men's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now that's the authorization God gave to humankind and human government to exercise the death penalty on murderers way, way, way back in time. Now, we don't, not everybody lives under that law today. Sometimes the laws change. But 
where the death penalty is a part of the law, it is certainly allowable to our governmental authorities to exercise that in God's plan. Now, I think it's also appropriate when we become aware of atrocities and evil things, such as, for example, Canon Hinart, Hinant, I guess you'd say, at five years old, down in Wilson, playing in his front yard, his 25-year-old neighbor walks out with a gun and shoots him dead. As far as anybody knows, no motive, no reason, just did it. Well, I mean, he maybe he had a motive and a reason, but nobody knows what it is. And you, you read something about it, it happened right here, right here in North Carolina, right on our noses. And now this is North Carolina, not North Korea. <laughs> but I don't know about you, but when, when I read something like that in a paper, when I hear that on the news, I, I am just so full of wrath about that. That's an injustice. That's an evil that needs to be eradicated. And in this case, it didn't take long to, he was arrested. But in many cases, there, there's some atrocity committed and we have the evidence and we don't know who did it. I think it's perfectly appropriate to pray that people that are doing such things be apprehended and punished by the legal system. That's a, that is a perfectly righteous prayer. Then in the latter part of, uh, oh, I should go down to verse 8 now. It says, let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes. Now, you just think about a snail or a slug inching along. They'll kind of leave a, a slimy residue in their wake. <laughs> uh, he, he is just using a picture from nature to say, you know, may their, their life ebb away from them and, and they may be removed from and in, prevented from doing more and more evil as they go along. Like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. Now, David's getting very, very specific. If need be, uh, and, and the penalty for their evil and their crime is their life, then let it be. David's not going out to do it. David's not taking the matters in his own hand. It's not up to us to be vigilantes. It's not up to us to seek vengeance. But that responsibility has been delegated to human government. And it is perfectly legitimate to pray that evil people who would do such things would be apprehended and punished rather than allowed to go on doing what they're doing and hurting even more people. And so we pray that that evil might dissipate in that way. And then finally, verse 9, he says, Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind as in his living and burning wrath. Now, this is a little difficult to interpret, but the picture is this. They would take a clay pot in those days, and they would set it over brushy, brambly stuff. Not heavy wood, but to get a quick fire, to heat up some water or whatever, you gather some underbrush and stuff. Believe me, there's not a lot of good firewood over there in that country, for the most part. It's barren wilderness for the most part, and scrubby plants so you you gather that kind of stuff and you put it under the pot and you light it on fire you have a quick fire and a quick heat to heat up the pot so he says before your pots can feel the results of those burning thorns god's going to act and david's wish here is god would act and take them away 
as quickly and swiftly as a whirlwind or a tornado would remove someone, as in his living and burning wrath. Now, he's asking God here. He's, he's wishing for God to intervene. He is putting this request before God. He is not doing evil in response. He is not taking vengeance, but he is in prayer, putting the matter in God's hands. Now let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 26 and verse 10. We've talked about David and the situation and the circumstance of being chased throughout the wilderness and hounded and Saul trying to kill him over and over and over for a long period of time. On one particular occasion, David got word that Saul was in a particular location and that he had settled down and he had a big band of soldiers and they had settled down for the night and Saul was sleeping in the middle of this great band of soldiers. They'd all laid down and uh, we were told in another part of the passage that God caused a deep sleep to fall on all of them. And David says, who will go down with me? And two men volunteered and or I guess it was one man volunteered, Abishai. Uh, and he went down with David, and they, they slipped into the camp, and they get right up to where Saul was laying there asleep on the ground, and Abishai has a spear in his hand, and he says, David, God's given your enemy your hand. Let me with the spear, and I will not have to do it twice. And believe me, if you know Abishai, he would not have had to done it twice. He was a fearless and uh, effective warrior. And David said, no, no. We don't strike the Lord's anointed. Anointed meaning he'd be anointed king. God made him king. It's not my job to take him out. David said furthermore, verse 10, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him. On his day shall come. On his day, that is the Lord's day, the day the Lord chooses. On his day shall come to die. And he shall go out to battle and perish. And that's exactly what happened to Saul sometime later. By the way, he did remove Saul's spear and his water bottle, and, and he took it off and got a long, far piece out and up on a high uh, precipice, and David starts yelling, Abner! <laughs> Abner, you messed up! Now, I'm paraphrasing, okay? Abner, you didn't take care of the king. You didn't protect him. Why, why, is, he, why is he castigating Abner? I have a feeling it's because Abner was one of those who egged on Saul to hunt David and it was one of the ones here that he's referring to back in verses 1 and 2 because Abner had nothing at all to gain from David becoming king when he was the commander of Saul. Now, he's just simply asking God to intervene in the case of evil. Now, verses 10 and 11 simply indicate the righteous vindication or the vindication of the righteous, I should say, as a result of God's action. So that men say, uh, let's back up, sorry, verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Not his own vengeance, but God's vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now that's a picturesque term here or description of battle in those days, which was up close and personal and hand to hand. And uh, victors in battle literally waded through the blood of those that were killed. And it's just a picture he's presenting here of the righteous uh, being rewarded and being victorious in the end. And the evil people they've left to God 
having suffered the result of their evil. Verse 11, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Now, all that said and done, I just want to remind you that Jesus himself said these words in Matthew 18, 6 of evil people. But whosoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, who believes in me to sin, it should be for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that wouldn't, that, that, that's again another metaphor, another descriptive terminology, but he, he's saying, look, there is, there is judgment for evil. You go to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. And there the, the martyred saints are crying out for justice, having been killed for their faith. So this is a theme that runs throughout scripture. It just has to be balanced by such passages as Romans 12. Now, now that I've said all that, I want to give you a concluding thought here, and it really is a little bit removed from what we've just looked at. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So when we within the church and the body of Christ do something that offends somebody, that person we've offended has an obligation to come and tell us our fault. You know, sometimes we offend others we don't even mean to. We're just thoughtless, ignorant. Sometimes we, we do purposefully say harsh things or do things we shouldn't. But let me, let me say this to you. It is not the proper Christian behavior to absorb such treatment in the body of Christ and not address it. For when someone offends us, lies about us, even if they don't know it, we, we may go to them and they say they thought they were telling the truth. You know, like the old lady said, you know, what do you mean I gossip? It's the truth. <laughs> Well, as far as you know, it is, you know. But uh, you, you go to the person and you point out their fault. You're loving them. You're helping them see their fault and the need to repent and to make things right. And you know, there's a restored relationships that result. It's not scriptural to never say anything and just all internalize it all. That's where we have a lot of problems in the church. We have a lot of broken relationships. And we have a lot of failures as a body. We are not loving each other because we never are honest with each other. You are not a troublemaker for addressing another person's fault. When it's egregious, when it's against you, it's your obligation to do that. And if you don't do it, that person doesn't learn a thing. He, he, he or she may not experience the conviction they should and, and come to the repentance they should because you have not addressed it. 
Now, there's always things that we can't address at large in society. That's what David's talking about. We can't take those into personal, take those matters into our own personal hands. We put those in the hands of God. Now, yeah, we should pray about offenses within the body of Christ too, but our prayer should be that we can resolve the issues and obtain forgiveness. And, and we, we circumvent that process when we don't deal with things. But somehow we have gotten this idea in Christian circles that it's more spiritual just to be quiet and never say a word about it. But that only makes it get worse in our own hearts and souls. And that only eats at us and leads us toward depression and so forth. So I know it's, it, it, it's close. It's, it's connected. But here's where we in the church fail more than any other, no doubt.